Christmas tree, oh Christmas tree. Welcome to Chance by Chance, the podcast for young artists, entrepreneurs, and creators of all types looking to navigate the professional field and to do this thing we call life. Happy holidays, folks. It's an exciting episode ahead of us today. Lee George, at Lee Peter George, is a guest I've wanted to have on the podcast since I decided to start it. In addition to being my friend and mentor, he's the Assistant Director of Corporate and Foundation Relations at Augsburg College. You'll hear more about what exactly that entails, as well as stories and advice he's accumulated as a founding member of Genuine Hero, the Director of Marketing and Strategic Partnerships at the James J. Hill Center, the Executive Director of the Workspace, an agroforestry volunteer in the Peace Corps, a student way back in the day, and so much more because Lee stays active. He's leading by example, building relationships, bringing calm to growth-oriented industries, mobilizing, organizing, and empowering people all over the place to achieve success. Here, he defines how he views success and how to find it through organizational diversity. He gives tips on business development, tells us how to ask for the help we need, and reveals some things he's changed his mind about over the years. This episode is absolutely packed with information for you to ponder and apply to your own lives and groups. Feel free to take more than one pass through the talk. You can find references listed in the show notes. I had a blast, and know you'll have some major takeaways from this one. Please enjoy my conversation with Lee George. Hey Lee, Hello. welcome to the show. Thank you. The, yeah, thanks for thanks for coming on. I have been reflecting over the past couple of days in preparing for this conversation on the way that you and I met, mm. and I've traced it as far back to my junior year of high school. I stumbled into the uh, to the library, and you uh, you found me a copy of the Architectural Record. Yeah, um, I was working on a project for an aesthetics class. Yeah, and then we sort of. Just started talking, both being in St. Paul for a couple of years. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I remember that. I remember when you came in and getting you that information. I think, like, I remember, like, not going super smooth. Like, I couldn't, like, <laughs> I couldn't, like, print it out or something. I think I ended up emailing you, maybe. I don't, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, it was a PDF. I remember yeah. printing it off. Yeah. And yeah. then I saw you at a bus station, um, I think, a few weeks after that, or maybe a month after that. I think. That's right. Yeah. Oh, oh, over across from the landmark. Yeah. yeah, I didn't really know like what to uh, like <laughs> to do because like I'm not used to interacting with uh, students in high school, mm-hmm. and uh, but taking the bus like there's always students in high school like around, and so I was like, well, I'm just gonna say hi. Yeah. I didn't want to be like that like awkward dude, but I no. thought it was really uh, interesting and cool that you had come into the library and uh, where I doing this project, and you took the initiative to ask about you know, ask for help basically because a lot of people don't do that that's yeah that's what it's all about may what uh when you say a lot of people don't ask for help can you elaborate on that i think that um a lot of people try to go uh go on you know on it on alone you know and they try and get things done themselves and they they don't always seek out resources that are available to them in terms of uh, the people close to them their, their friends and one concept I thought of, uh, especially during my volunteer management years, was like this thought of a cup of sugar and like this kind of Americana, like iconic, classic imagery of walking next door and borrowing a cup of sugar, <laughs> right? Such a simple thing, non-emotional, like 
it's not a super huge impact on somebody's life, but like people would go next door and like borrow ingredients to eat. Yeah. And how we don't do that anymore. Even in our residential neighborhoods, I feel from the places I've lived that people are uncomfortable. It may, it might be a Minnesota thing, but people are uncomfortable seeking even that type of low level assistance from someone hmm. in proximity from them and hmm. someone they might have lived next to for, for years. And when you think about then what does that mean for when uh, people are actually seeking help for meaningful things, whether it's illness or what, whatever it might be, um, that how do we make that leap from not even being able to ask for a basic ingredient to asking someone to buy you groceries because you just had surgery and you can't get out of your house hmm. um, or uh, your spouse is sick or your kids are not doing well in school and you need someone to talk to or, yeah, you know, we that- don't always seek out. That's a really good point because for the increasing connectivity that we see today via the internet and all of those sorts of things, I also sense seclusion on an individual level. Even within my own neighborhood, like you mentioned, you know, it's just sort of uncomfortable. Sometimes you see your neighbors and you don't really know what to say. What, What do you recommend for first steps in working through that and asking for help when it's needed, especially for young people? I think what gets in the way a lot of times is we make considerations for people. Like we may, we decide for them about um, it, is this going to be inconvenient for them? Hmm. Is this going to be off-putting? Is this going to make them feel awkward or embarrassed or weird? And we don't know. We project that onto other people, and that's really insensitive. And and we don't need to do that, right? Yeah. And so a lot of it is just getting beyond creating those considerations of how we think other people are going to react to. Uh, just authentically putting something out there into into the world and seeing how people respond and being okay with whatever happens. Is that something that you picked up from your time at school, your time working? Did that come earlier in life, that, that realization? I think the, be, the ability to think about it in these terms, like to be able to break it down, came way later in life. I think early on in life it was just a way of being for myself. Um, Probably just because of who I am, and I think because of my own family and how how they operate and how they raise me, and probably a little bit of um, being oblivious to, <laughs> to like certain uh, like social situations, possibly like early on in life, like oh yeah, like this may not be quote unquote normal of how people operate, but this is how I operate, and I don't really care. Yeah, I mean, we're sitting here in your office, looking at a couple of your mom's paintings. Yeah. Are, do you think that openness is because both your parents are artistic or I, I don't know I, I guess I don't know what your dad works yeah. on my dad's super creative uh, but not in like an art like kind of traditional artistic form mm-hmm. but he is super methodical in this monastic way hmm. of um, like their house like we I grew up in this little story and a half house in South Minneapolis and growing up over the years my parents kind of would work on the house and refinish it and now it's like this really gorgeous still story and a half house like tiny house in South Minneapolis which is beautiful and like their backyard has turned into just like such a sanctuary every time someone goes to their house everyone's like wow it is so relaxing here because like <laughs> And that my mom is a big part of that, but my dad is definitely a big part of that, or just how he approaches details and process. So I, I guess, but to, to get into the openness question, they both always created space for learning, and I don't think they ever hindered me in my own creativity. I think they always helped help that kind of prosper and grow. And then how I was in the world, like they always kind of 
they they weren't strict, but they definitely had kind of rules around like etiquette and how you are and how you are to people, both from a spiritual sp- standpoint and then from just kind of like what's proper in some ways. Yeah. So. Spiritual separate from religion or in, in what way? I mean, we grew up as a religious family, uh, grew up Catholic and went to Catholic Church and, you know, confirmed. Um, but I think for my parents and I think for me, it was beyond like institutionalized religion, like this, this spirituality of connectedness and um, how we are in the world and how we are to people is beyond um, the walls of, of an institution or where we go on a Sunday. Definitely. I want to talk about the work that you're doing here at Augsburg. Can yeah. you just walk us through what a day looks like or the projects you have going right now? Yeah, it's been really interesting. I've been at Augsburg less than a year, and I my title is Assistant Director of Corporate Foundation Relations, and it falls within the institutional advancement arm of the college, which is the fundraising arm. So we have people in our department that do major gifts and individual donations. And my main role is writing grants and finding corporate sponsorships to to fund our programs. The interesting thing about Augsburg is that it has all of our great academic programs, and then it also has all these basic nonprofits inside the institution that we also support and fund. And those nonprofits or organizational arms uh, really live out the mission of Augsburg and benefit our students and also benefit our community. And so, so for instance, we have the Minnesota Urban Debate League, and there basically wasn't uh, any more urban debate in Minnesota, and then it was revitalized, and Augsburg took it in um, under the auspices of Augsburg College, and now we have a full staff that runs that program, and they work with 750 middle school and high school kids in Minneapolis and St. Paul, and has all this local research and data and national data about the benefits of debate programs for students and like reading comprehension and graduation rates and all this just incredible stuff, right? We host the Nobel Peace Prize Forum every year, which is like one of three things that uh, have the name Nobel attached to it that happen outside of Oslo. And it's a, and we've been hosting it for a long time and it's, you know, surrounds dialogue around uh, conflict resolution and all sorts of initiatives that are happening globally and locally and just like really great, great stuff. And so for a tiny college, and those are just two of the things Things. Like there's tons of things that we do, but those are two of the things that we um, have here that we help raise money for. The other part of what I do and kind of the corporate relations side of things is at the end of the day, it is kind of about bringing money into the college. But with that, it's a little more comprehensive in terms of providing opportunities for our students. Our students, the the goal of a college degree is to go into the world and to do work and to get a job. And um, in order to do that, it's really creating like a workforce pipeline to our corporate partners, our business partners, our organizational partners in the community so that they have relationships with the school and with our students. So that might be paid internships or mentoring or coming to, you know, someone coming from business to come and talk at Augsburg College. And Augsburg being one of the most diverse colleges in Minnesota and businesses seeking to diversify their workforce, there's a really great symbiotic relationship to happen there. However, there's a lot of work that needs to be done. And, um, Augsburg has been very intentional over the last 10 years about diversifying what our student body uh, looks like. Hmm. And they build relationships with all sorts of 
college uh, readiness programs in order to create opportunity and access to a four-year degree. And so we did a really good job about getting students in. The rest of that work is well, how do we help those students graduate and then how do we help them actually have uh, success in finding opportunity, employment opportunities. And before we started recording, you mentioned that you are currently facilitating conversations with different companies and sort of preparing them for the students coming into that workforce. What does that look like, opening up yeah. that dialogue and preparing or, or increasing awareness if you have such a diverse college here and the workforce is not the most diverse necessarily? How do you how do you open that door? I mean, sometimes it, like those conversations are really difficult. You know, over the last number of years now, like it's almost like you can throw a rock and hit a discussion about diversity and inclusion, right? Like, <laughs> they're all over the place. And, and some of them are really great, and some of them, like, are just rehashing the, the old things. Like, yeah, we need to change. We need to change how we operate. We need to change our processes. We need to change where we're posting positions and the language we use and, and all sorts of internal cultural things within organizations. What I found is that there are definitely leaders and organizations who have made movement and like created action ar around those discussions and changed how they're operating. And from an institutional standpoint, how we approach that or how I approach that is using some of the tools that we have at our own disposal. And so we have a great uh, chief diversity officer, and, and she does workshops for corporations uh, around diversity and inclusion that really helps them reflect uh, individually and then organizationally where they're at on this, this spectrum of, of understanding with the premise that, uh, which is proven that diverse teams are more successful teams and have a greater return on investment for organizations. And so there is like a business reason to diversify and to be able to lead diverse teams. You use the word successful. Diversity leads to success, both in business and in a broader sense. Why is diversity important to community, in your own words? Oh, man, that's, that is good. Mm. I think diversity, I mean, helps us thrive. My, you know, my academic background is in environmental ethics and natural resource management. So I remember uh, taking a philosophy of ecology course where we we discussed like what ecology was for like a semester, and I kind of never like really figured it out because it like can be <laughs> lots of different things. But you know, it's ba the, basically uh, it is like how organisms um, or things react within a, a certain proximity or a certain. Um, area of each other, uh, but as you, so as you, but if you look close, like maybe you have three things, and as you keep like looking broader and broader out, that that um, environment, that ecosystem becomes more and more complex. But we all, I think, most people have a basic understanding of biodiversity and the fact that our world works because we have a diverse ecosystem, hmm. right? And hmm. that um, it can take it can take uh, things failing because it is so diverse and it can revive itself, but the less, the fewer and fewer variables we have in there, the more we are contingent upon everything succeeding. From a financial standpoint, people always say diversify your portfolio, right? You don't want all your eggs in one basket right. because if, if one goes sour, then you're stuck, right? Mm -hmm. So diversity in lots of ways is, is really good. Um, I think in a, a community standpoint and what we've seen uh, recently in the um, political election is that uh, there is a lack of understanding. Um, there's a diverse set of thoughts in the country. There's There was a lack of acknowledgement of what different people in our country were actually thinking and how things were affecting them. And so it, when we think about it from a community standpoint, it's great to have diversity of thought. 
otherwise we end up in this situation where like it seems like half the country was surprised about what happened when the other half of the country was not surprised about what happened right and that's a really interesting interesting thing to look at uh for i live in minneapolis in a very progressive neighborhood uh, i look at my facebook feed a uh, ton of very like liberal progressive people a diverse group of people but politically pretty homogeneous hmm. and so i'm constantly being influenced by kind of like one way like maybe way, way of thinking even though i thought maybe my my the input my input my informational input was more diverse than it, it actually is interesting so, yeah. that uh, that takes a uh, that takes some awareness itself just to recognize that yeah well it's hard it's difficult it also i mean in s- some ways made me think about like my purpose and then like what I feel like I'm here to do and that in some ways this lack of understanding of what was happening in the country is a real failing on my part individually hmm. because there seemingly is a whole group of people that I just really don't understand culturally and I live in the same country right so there's some work that needs to be done there via Improving communication, would you say? Yeah, and, and relations and, um, you know, being in proximity of people who think very differently than me. And, and without, like, having to even think about value judgments of, what, like, who's right and who's wrong or what's good and what's bad, the fact is that we are citizens of the same country. And I think we have a responsibility to each other to know each other uh, and know what's happening in our lives. I do that geographically a lot in things I'm involved with, but obviously need to to find other ways to get that, that information or those relationships or uh, those types of conversations. Jumping back to your education, that was at the University of Wisconsin-Stevens Point. Yeah. And you attended studying environmental ethics, resource management, and also philosophy. Yeah. I'm interested in the transition from school to the Peace Corps to the community work that you're doing now. Can you walk me through that progression of thought? Yeah. Uh, Well, I went to Stevens Point because they had the premier natural resource school in the United States at the time and uh, grew up in South Minneapolis, but also grew up backpacking and camping and canoeing and, you know, doing all sorts of stuff outdoors. Yeah. And, you know, grew up reading Edward Abbey and just... Like loved being on Tom Brown Jr. Wilderness uh, Guide to Wilderness Survival and like all the, these great books, you know, I loved being being outdoors. So I was like, well, I'm gonna do something outdoors. Like that's exactly what I'm gonna do. Why not? Uh, it turns out I didn't really like <laughs> like like forestry, like the the occupation. You didn't like it. Forestry, like I didn't <laughs> I didn't know that. However, that was like with a limited experience of like what having a degree in forestry like actually meant. Um, and so around my sophomore year, I started kind of examining, like, well, what, like, how do I, uh, what I actually want to do and what am I actually good at? What I'm good at is thinking and uh, building relationships with people. And so it seems more natural to get a degree in philosophy and environmental ethics than continuing down a road of, um, like, forest management practices. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, they, I got to do a lot of great things during that time. I got to um, get my Forest Industry Safety Train Alliance Chainsaw Safety Certificate and my Wildland Firefighting Certificate and helped with some prescribed burns. Like all this really interesting and neat stuff and made, and made great friends. But it was really transitioning into philosophy that I really kind of hit my stride. Like once I changed academically, like I started to really enjoy my classes a lot more. 
because it was uh, fit more with how I, I am and how, what I want to do. Definitely. And so but then thinking, I never had any career goals. Like, so like thinking about like what I was going to do with that, like I had no idea. And I was, that was okay. Like I, I didn't really care. I still don't necessarily have any career goals. I guess though, coming out of college, I just said yes to a lot of things. And that was kind of my MO in college too. Like I just did a lot of things. And um, that was a recommendation with, from my brother before I went. He said, Lee, you know, uh, you're going to, uh, experience a lot of new things in college and there's going to be a lot of opportunities and I just encourage you to say yes. And I said, all right, Carl. Fantastic yeah, advice. right? So I yeah. did. And so like I was involved in all these things and that led me to meet all these people and then transitioning out of college, I, through our church, one of our members ran, uh, helped run a Catholic worker house in Stevens Point. My wife and I had gotten involved in that our senior years of college and then moved in after we got married right out of college. And so open up this whole new world of what it means to live in community and be in relationship with people when you're living in a house and hosting programs out of the main floor and um, having people sleep on your couch and have a food pantry in your basement. And I missed exactly what you said this house was. It's a, So it's a Catholic, it was part of the Catholic worker system, mm-hmm. which was started by Dorothy Day. The Catholic worker system was started by Dorothy Day and Peter Marin in mm-hmm. about like 1933. And um, with a premise of all the houses is around some sort of hospitality, but they're they're not a part of the Catholic Church and they're not uh, integrated into a formal system. They're all individuals within communities who've identified uh, gaps in services for people within their community and mm. they've come together to kind of fill that gap. Wow. Yeah. And so we were, we, our kind of mission was providing hospitality for individuals in our community, many of them who had developmental disabilities and mental health issues or chemical dependencies creating relationships and support and helping to connect them to services uh, in Stevens Point. That's amazing. Yeah, it was, it was, it was great. Uh, I mean, it was a phenomenal experience. Um, it was definitely, I mean, when we think of what's radical, I do think that building community is one of the most radical things that anybody can do to part of, partly to the point you made earlier about our use of technology and how we have this interconnectedness. And at the same time, it doesn't seem to necessarily bring us together uh, and build community. It's a first step, but it's not the it's not the whole run no. there, you know. Yeah. And I, I think that's true of most things. If you look at, say, meditation, just as an example, it's not so much the act of meditating itself; it's then applying it to your daily life, being a little more mindful throughout your experiences. Mm. It's mm. not about sitting with your legs crossed yeah. necessarily. Yeah. 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 And then uh, Peace Corps. Yeah. You ended up across the ocean, yeah, right? Yeah, ended up across the ocean doing agroforestry work in Mauritania, West Africa. And my wife was doing health education, public health work. And again, that was like, that was another incredible experience in terms of like figuring out how the world works and who people are and how they live and uh, how little I know of how everything works. It's extremely challenging, extremely challenging because it is a, a very difficult environment to live in. It's the Sahara Desert. It's very dry. It's very hot. No beaches. Uh, you can't, at the end of the day, go sit someplace relaxing. Like, you're going to sit and it's going to be, like, super high. You're going to have flies all over the place. And uh, the food wasn't always fantastic. And But it, at the same time, the people were incredible. I mean, the hospitality in Mauritania was second to none. Like you could go anywhere and people would welcome you in and serve you tea and bread and 
I mean, they would, there was a high respect for visitors um, and providing the hospitality that was really, I mean, culturally founded in their religious tradition. It's an Islamic republic. So mm. everybody in Mauritania is Muslim. And so the thought of uh, inviting strangers in and welcoming them into your household is extremely important. Wow. And when you were exposed to the differences between life in Mauritania 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 and your life here in the United States how did you address what arose internally um, it took me a long time to kind of come to terms with what that experience was for me and I think I still don't quite comprehend it because it was, it was very complex like I knew going to Mauritania and living there and the, all the challenges and all the great things about it like really changed me and change how I looked at life. It you know changed my relationship with God, and yet I still didn't quite understand um, how it had changed. I just knew it did. I knew I had come back as somebody else, and so f- part of that was really just understanding that the world is very like it's very complex. Hmm. There's no simple answers. There's no like 100% solutions to everything. It's all like just bits and pieces. And so as a person who's oriented their life around. Uh, loving people and trying to address uh, social issues in, in the world and do good, uh, that was hard. It was hard to like really be faced you know, with the realization that like, oh yeah, like you're not going to do everything right and everything you do isn't going to solve everything and there's not, maybe not a way to solve everything hmm. uh, and there's kind of endless work to do. And uh, coming out of that, it is then trying not to become apathetic and continue to have energy to uh, work on issues and uh, to try and do your part. That being said, what was the first thing you did when you got back home, Chron- uh, chronologically? I mean, did you did you have a job lined up coming back, or no. you started looking? Yeah, no, I came back and like so I did start looking for a job right away, and um, that was. I mean, when I came back, we ate a ton of food because. Uh, <laughs> probably pretty malnourished and like we didn't have access to a lot of um, a variety of food so we just ate like a ton of food which was great and then I started looking (laughs) for a job (laughs) probably in that order Uh, but that's when I found out so I started looking for a job and I I found out that like oh wow like uh, I started seeing these positions descriptions for volunteer management positions I was like I had no idea that existed I was like this is probably like one of the coolest things I've ever heard that like you literally get to get paid for organizing people to do really cool stuff in the world. Like, that is awesome. <laughs> yeah. That is, like, phenomenal. Yeah. I totally wanted to do that, and I had a lot of experience doing that already from uh, my work, like, not knowing that that would lead to some sort of, like, actual career opportunity. Just clicked? Yeah, but, like, forever I'd been organizing people to do stuff, and so uh, even from, a, like, a, a younger age. And so, like, that was great. And um, got an awesome job uh, working with a local organization here in Minnesota that just offered me opportunity to grow professionally and in leadership capacities and uh, allowed me time to be on state boards of all these other volunteer organizations and uh, just learn a lot. And so kind of in a very short time from, you know, probably 2004 to 2009, I was able to work on a very hyper-local level, working at the Catholic Worker, uh, work on a more of a global level, being at the Peace Corps, and then came back and was able to le- work on a state level. And so really work in these like three different um, areas, which was 
really interesting to kind of compare how I operate and how things can operate at different levels hmm. and the importance of structure and systems um, at those types of different types of levels too. I have to say levels of involvement is one of the the biggest takeaways that I've had in just my time knowing you. I remember my senior year, I was struggling considering what exactly I wanted to mm -hmm. do going forward. And I, I still don't know, but you helped me realize that it doesn't have to be one thing or the other. It doesn't have to be concentrated involvement or worldwide involvement different things can happen at different times mm -hmm. so thanks thanks for that one <laughs> i'll credit you with that one well, I, kinda, I try to remind myself of that too like it's that i mean that's a hard thing to kind of i think keep uh, in front of my mind too hmm. yeah. and then jumping up to uh, work at the james j hill center yeah can you give me an overview of what you did there yeah so i got into the um, so the james j hill center is a business library and I had worked at, when I came back from the Peace Corps, I'd worked at this statewide organization for about five or six years. And towards the end of it, I started thinking about the impact I actually want to have. And I looked back at all my experiences and all the people I worked with, whether it was people in, in Stevens Point who um, had mental health issues or people in West Africa or individuals with disabilities or the kids on the north side I worked with. And pretty much like everybody I worked with, everybody wanted to make a life for themselves and they wanted to make a life better for themselves and they wanted access to opportunity. That just wasn't always there. And so I thought, okay, well, and I also looked at, well, what have I seen from a sustainability model that I think is effective in actually addressing issues on a, a local level, no matter what community you're in? And it seemed like economic development, economic empowerment was the way to go. And so then I started thinking about, well, then we need to create more jobs because people just don't have access to jobs. And I thought, well, what can like, like average Joe on the street, like how do I create a job? And so that's how I got into working with entrepreneurs and startups and businesses. Um, and so my work at the James J. Hill Center was really around kind of uh, creating partnerships and programs to help entrepreneurs and startups. Yeah, that reminds me of a quote I wrote down. You were or currently are a director at the Workspace? That was, yeah, so that, that was a nonprofit that I helped start up with a few other people that was building co-working spaces in communities that traditionally wouldn't have access to those. Yeah, and, the, and the quote was, he wanted to get involved in what it actually meant to create jobs I, yeah. <laughs> versus what it, it doesn't mean. What's yeah. the difference there? Okay, so that verbiage probably was, I'm trying to think what year it might have been, but like it was all this, <laughs> it was, you know, like all this talk about like Wall Street and Main Street. Mm -hmm. And the news and Pete pundits were talking about creating jobs, creating jobs, creating jobs. And I got so tired <laughs> of that conversation, right? Like, I'm like, okay, like you're talking about this, like let's create jobs. Let's like, do it already. Yeah, let's do it. So yeah. I I wanted to understand what it actually meant to create a job. Like, what does that? What does it mean to create a job? What'd you find out? Uh, it's really hard. Like, it's really hard <laughs> to create a job, right? Like, uh, like starting businesses, starting organizations, and starting businesses is super difficult. Hmm. Um, Fifty percent of them fail within their first five years. Like, it's really hard. Uh, at the same time, small businesses uh, employ more people than um, all the kind of major companies, all major businesses in the United States. And so, hmm. so I found it. It's really hard, and I found out that uh, it takes again people working on lots of different levels in order to create economic sustainability and economic growth within a community. Uh, you know, it takes people on in the private and public sectors and it takes the entrepreneurs and I mean it takes a whole host of people in order to kind of make this happen. For those looking to build businesses, communities, young innovators and entrepreneurs, 
What do you think are the first couple of steps that may lead to success? Uh, pairing that also with common mistakes you have seen young creators make over the years. Let's focus on the the transient, the non-brick-and-mortar. Yeah. So with that, I, I'd say, I mean, one, having a great idea and uh, being extremely passionate and also, like, for sure, like, knowing your weaknesses. Like, mm. that is probably the thing I saw the most. Like, I saw, like, we, I started help bring a pitch program, a startup pitch program to the Twin Cities called One Million Cups, and it's a national program now. And every week we'd have entrepreneurs, founders of companies come and they would pitch their startup. A lot of great companies and a lot of great entrepreneurs. And probably the thing I saw the most was that our founders didn't understand how to build a team around them. And so uh, sometimes like you would have someone who was a a really great like pitch person, like they could do like the marketing and the sales component, the storytelling component really well, but they they couldn't really... Uh, maybe deliver on like the technical aspects or you'd have someone who like understood like all the technical components like had created a product and engineered it and it was awesome but they really didn't know how to do the business development side of it Hmm. and so i think founders and companies i saw that had a lot of potential are are ones that had someone who understood that they're good at x y and z and then they need to find a team to help support them and that's hard to do early on in it because you don't have any resource like you can't you're not paying people so right. enrolling people in a vision in some capacity or you know giving them part of your company in order to work with you to develop a product i mean that's that's a challenge you've got that quote at the the end of your email yeah. that i love if you want to teach people to build a ship, don't yeah. don't get them to drum up wood and yeah. do all these things. Teach them to long for the right. sea. Yeah. What does that mean? You know, if if you if you are passionate about something and you need to bring other people on board to fill in those weaknesses, yeah. how do you teach someone to long for that endless immensity of possibility? Oh, yeah, I don't. I mean, I love I love that quote too. Like, I think it speaks to what leadership actually is. You know, and it's that comes from one of my first bosses brad donaldson who really taught me that like you can really teach people to do a lot of things within a job like Mm. you had the technical skills but what you can't teach is that kind of passion and like that fire and that vision and that grit and like those things that don't come in like a manual and people don't always come with those things to to anything like um, so as a leader if you can inspire people to have that passion to have that vision to show them that they have cause in the matter that they can do something about uh, what whatever your mission is whatever your company is doing whatever your organization is doing you can teach them all those things you can teach people how to build a boat hmm. um, but you can't teach them that that desire to go out into the grand ocean and on an adventure hmm. I mean maybe it's just a matter of leading by example because if I, I think oftentimes passionate people, th- I think that resonates yeah. a- across their environments. I think that's true. You think of yourself as a facilitator. Also, it, just in reading over your, your profile and whatnot coming here today, I, I found another quote about supporting groups as they struggle and eventually succeed in finding solutions and answers. How do you keep people moving towards their end goal when failures do come that's a good question it's a i mean that is a struggle like it's worded like that partly because of how i have kind of started to understand like what my role is in different issues being a white male and working on social issues 
can be an interesting place to come from because it often means that whatever organ nonprofit or organization or cause I'm working with, I'm not necessarily of that community. Hmm. You know, I'm out, I'm an outsider, and this is this should be true for anyone. It's just particularly this is how I identify as this is a white male, and so um, being sensitive to what that brings into um, a community, and um, then how. Uh, I play a role in supporting that community to find solutions or find answers or connect them to resources. I don't have a necessarily like an answer to like how I specifically like operate in those situations other than I know my role is uh, one of um, helping facilitate, connect, and support people to be champions and not have to be the champion. Champions. Yeah. How do you define success? What's it mean to you? Probably joy. Joy? Yeah, success, I mean, for me, success is being, like, joyful. Like, if someone's joyful, like, nothing else matters, right? <laughs> like, if you're, like, you're truly joyful, like, you're gonna have all sorts of terrible things happening in your life, and if you're, if you're joyful, like, that's pretty successful, I'd yeah. say. It doesn't mean that you don't go to work on whatever those other things are, uh, but if you can still have joy in your life, no matter what is happening, um, that would be that success. I like it. What brings you joy? I know bike riding does I for love, one yeah, thing. I, mean, I love being outside. I, I, um, one of my good friends, Phil, he uh, said to me, "It is like one of the best pieces of feedback I've ever received in my life." I tell this like to everybody unabashedly. Is he said, <laughs> "Lee, you mistake excitement for expertise," <laughs> and, uh, and like it's so it's really true. Like uh, I'm a generalist, and I get excited about like lots of stuff. Like I just like to do lots of different things, and I um, am not afraid to try new things. And I find joy in trying new things. And it doesn't mean I'm going to do those things forever, but I just like to do. I like to do new things. I like to experience new things partly because it helps me meet new people but yeah so like I, I'm a really outdoorsy people like I, I have a person like I like to camp I like to bike uh, I like to be outside um, I love to cook uh, hmm. I love to read I love to play board games I love board games what's your favorite board game right now Ooh, um, I've been playing a lot of or I have been playing Access and Allies quite a bit with some some buddies I don't I, I haven't played that before myself For, yeah it's a it's a good one it's like uh, it's a World War II board game uh, Access versus Allies and it's a strategy game and it's pretty in, in depth and intense but, yeah. yeah oh man you gotta I'll play it. I grew up, my family grew up playing like games like also, you know like we, we played you know sequence and catchphrase and, like all Scrabble and all those games growing up and, cool so what do you know now that you wish you would have known when you were 20? Hmm. Something around like the idealism I felt when I was 20. That that idealism is good and it is beneficial to the world and it was beneficial to me. It does a lot of good in the world. It propels people to take action and to be involved. At the same time that as you, as I, so if I was telling my 20 year old self, um, with the knowledge that like it's hard to retain that idealism and to not let that idealism go and slip into cynicism, but to know that there's a balance in learning and experiences that I might become less of an idealist and more of a realist hmm. and uh, that that might be okay. Hmm. Oh, I'm man. still struggling with it, if that's okay. But. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, when you're living in the question, 
The work never really ends, but yeah. I think that's that's what's exciting about life. Yeah. That coming from an idealistic that's 20-year-old. Know, right? <laughs> I know. It's um, so good that you're an idealistic 20-year-old. <laughs> Uh, Everything in its own time, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. What's a what's one thing that you've changed your mind about over the years? Ooh, probably a bunch of stuff. <laughs> I think one of, probably one of the most serious things that I struggle with is regarding whether or not I'm still a pacifist. Hmm. And um, I like to think I am, and at the same time, I think I have appreciation. Isn't the right word for it? But maybe a um, understanding of why war occurs, um, and partly just because of living and traveling and understanding how complicated life is, and being in situations that I felt I was in danger, and hmm. what my natural core response was, which was not necessarily one of a pacifist. Yeah, you know, um, and so I struggle with those feelings not living up to my ideals of how I think I should be in the world. Yeah, uh, but along those lines, I think perhaps war or violence or the things we've experienced have been necessary in that our humanity is still very young mm-hmm. on, an, on an evolutionary scale. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, pacifism and increased understanding is definitely something that we're working towards, it, it, but it, it takes instruction in the same way that a little kid might push another little kid just because they don't understand it's wrong. Right. But I think as um, our civilization grows up, so to speak, maybe that all turns around. I mean, hope, hope in action. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, so we're coming up on the, the tail end of our time. Yeah. I'm going to wrap up with some rapid fire questions. Okay. Your answers can be however long they need to be. Okay. Tell me some of your favorite books or books you've gifted to other people most often. I'd say um, I think books I've like John Hassler Stagerford is probably uh, one that I've I, I love and I've recommended Small Town uh, Minnesota book uh, which is great probably The Monkey Wrench Gang by Edward Abbey mm-hmm. those two probably I feel like the most okay perfect and shows documentaries movies that have caught your attention lately mm. yeah we my wife and I've been watching. Um, 13th, a Netflix documentary about the prison system, basically how it grew out of um, post-slavery in America and just how different systems um, have led us to where we're at with having the most people in prison out of any like country in the entire world. Ooh. I can watch about like 15 minutes of it at a time before I just get like <laughs> distraught. <laughs> oh, man. You know? Uh, yeah. And at the same time, it's like just like wants to propel you into action to do something about it, and it's like, oh, but it's such a complex system. Yeah. Outside of your work here at Augsburg, who else in the community do you think is doing good work? Whoever comes to the top of your mind. Yeah. Oh, so many people. Um, I got a buddy, uh, Bill Emery, who like I just think it has done. He just moved to Michigan. But uh, while he was in Minnesota, he did a ton of community organizing and just such uh, a cause for good. And I really appreciated um, uh, his approach to community organizing and his wealth and knowledge about kind of the political system and the organizing system. Hmm. I think the Minnesota Association for Volunteer Administration, uh, which I was on the board for for a long time, but they do um, a tremendous amount of good. It's the largest group of professional volunteer managers in the country. And Hmm. uh, when we think about 
how things get done um, in our communities that's with volunteers and having people to help organize those they're, they're doing a ton of good cool and finally if anyone is interested in learning more about the work that you're doing here or perhaps connecting with you via social media is there a place you want to send them to do either of those things yeah you can find me at twitter at lee peter george all right yeah i'm there cool yeah well lee thanks for your time yeah. pleasure to see you as thanks always chance. this is great thank you till next time Oh, Christmas tree. Oh, Christmas tree. That's a wrap on episode seven. Head on over to Twitter to connect with Lee. Maybe pose a question you've been reflecting on or just say thanks. While you're on those interwebs, head on over to iTunes to leave Chance by Chance a rating or review. And if you've especially made use of the podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash chance by chance to leave a donation. It's your contributions that allow me to dedicate more of my time and attention to this endeavor and to continue scaling up. Also, I have a website now, chancebychance.com. You can reach my Patreon page through a support button there and listen to episodes. I'm developing it a little bit every day. There's a blog and some other cool stuff in store, so stay tuned. That's chancebychance.com. See you there. As you go... Here's a track from one of my favorite new bands. It's the Happy Children of Normal Parents. I've seen them live multiple times. Their recent EP, Small Talk, expertly captures their raw energy in every track. I'll link to it on my Facebook page. This song is called Honest Boy. Thank you for listening.